colorful way And when my mind is wandering There I will And welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza, and I will be your host in our journey to discover and delve into some of the more underloved, underrated movies that are floating around out there. Today's movie is a uh, an especially interesting one for this show because this is not one that you would expect someone with my odd, eclectic taste to really be into. We'll be talking about a very sensitive, gentle movie from 1977 called Oh God, starring the wonderful combination of George Burns and John Denver. <laughs> and uh, it's, again, this is not a movie you'd expect me to have on the show, but it's one that I really feel very strongly for, and, and it'll be interesting to we delve into that. And uh, I will introduce my guest here. My guest here today on today's podcast, she is a very well-known pop culture guru, internet writer, just a big fan of pop culture in general, mystery science theater fan like me. Uh, you may know her from Rob Has a Podcast. This is the first time we've ever done a podcast together. Please welcome Jessica Lease. Hi, Mario. I'm super psyched to be here. Oh, yeah. This is this is going to be a fun one because, as uh, Jessica and I kind of discussed before we went on the air here, this movie is one that's very – it walks the fine line on being in good taste or being outright blasphemy. And you have two people here who are not especially religious. They're going to try to delve into this one. So we will be skating the line of getting in trouble, I think, quite, uh, quite finely on this episode. Yeah, well, I think we're going <clears> to <throat> – we're going to have a great – debate here on whether it actually ever does kind of veer into that blasphemous territory because I'll tell you I grew up in a household that was regular churchgoers and very religious and whenever this movie was on my parents actually loved that I was so into it wow uh, my very religious parents thought it was great that there was a this sweet sentimental movie about god and I was super into it so so they were not against the idea that God could take human form and show up in a movie. They were fine with that? Yeah, they were fine with it. I think the overall message is pretty positive. Um, and, you know, they never they never actually take his name in vain, if you think about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's surprising how tasteful this movie is and how pro... I mean, it really, it's not... I'm not saying it's controversial. It's very much pro-faith, pro the idea of there being a God, but it does dump on organized religion quite blatantly and it's one of those that i grew up in a super religious household my dad was super catholic like to the extent that my grandparents when they go to mass as a kid it couldn't be in english it had to be in latin like this is the hardcore catholicism that i grew up with and then on the other side my grandfather on my mom's side was the president of the lutheran layman's league like the president (laughs) of the church so like i come from about as religious a background as you can get kind of getting it hit from both sides and this is a movie that would not have been encouraged in my house just because it would have been a little dicey on some of the theology, I think. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, There are some things in it that don't exactly conform to anything you would have been taught in a formal Sunday school. Although I have to wonder, growing up half Catholic and half Protestant, there was like one capital T theology for you? <laughs> no. Okay, here's the rule. And, and my parents are not around anymore, bless their hearts, so I can say this. I could not say this when they were alive. But the rule was, 
my dad kind of took the lead in, in church. We would go to Catholic church. We'd be baptized. We'd go to Sunday school, First Communion. But if dad got lazy and stopped taking us to church on a regular basis, which he was known to do, then we had to go to Lutheran church with my mom, which was way worse because it was like way longer. So that was that was how it was. So the Catholic was the thing. The Lutheran was the punishment. And I did not want to go to the Lutheran one, which generally involved a three-hour potluck with the entire city afterwards. <laughs> That that sounds like the Lutheran church that I grew up in. <laughs> okay, so let me hear about your backstory with this movie. How did you get it introduced to it? Is it something you grew up with? How did we end up here, the two of us, snarky pop culture people, talking about a movie this gentle and sensitive? Um, well, I, I have a soft spot for anything that that is earnestly presented. And I think that kind of... That's pretty obvious in my musical tastes, in my literature tastes, and this movie was something that I stumbled on by accident in the 80s when I was a child, and we it was around the dawn of the Encore Network, which was a pay channel that came in your cable package shortly after we got cable. This movie network came up, and it was like a dollar a month, so my parents decided it was worth it. And they touted themselves as the best movies of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And there was a lot of stuff on there that I – they would air it relentlessly. Whatever they got was always on. And this was one of those movies that was – every time you turn the TV on, it would be on. And I'd just kind of pick it up midstream and enjoy it. And, again, my parents thought this was very wholesome. It was better than watching, like, R-rated movies. It's pretty much if Disney put it out. I was allowed to watch it, and other than that, they'd have to vet it. But this, this seemed pretty harmless, and they let me, they let me watch it, and so I watched it an awful, awful lot, um, to the point where I ended up, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this later on, but I ended up tracking down the sequels, and we would rent them on VHS tapes from the video store, and I rented, oh God, you devil, probably four or five times, um, but the OG, oh God, as it were, is really the best of the three and the most fun. And, of course, George Burns is this guy that if you grew up, I think, around the time that you and I did, Mario, you're a few years older than I am. But you don't know George Burns as his vaudeville personality with uh, Gracie Allen. You know him as a guy whose entire shtick was around being old and cranky and snarky. <laughs> Yeah, and that's something I hope to get across to a lot of my younger listeners. You may not even know who George Burns is, so I'll just kind of give a quick summary. He was this guy, very famous vaudeville comedian. He was part of a husband and wife team. They were Burns and Allen with his wife, Gracie Allen, and uh, they were an interesting pair. This was back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, I would assume. I kind of forget, but it was interesting because he was the straight man in the act, and she got to do all the punchlines, and that was kind of reversed for the typical comedian husband-wife team of the era that the, the husband would always do the punchline so he would always give the punchlines to Gracie she became a big star he was always her straight man and then she died and that was kind of his legacy for many years he was just this old guy who who was madly in love with Gracie he had the big the big romance of all time they she died and then he was just a single guy and then later he somehow had a second career as an actor and it started in a movie called the sunshine boys where he won uh, an oscar and then this was the second movie oh god and he just rocks in this movie I, there's no other way to would you agree with that he just owns this movie oh yeah he's really i think it's it's his time to shine he's not the straight man in this one and mm -hmm. he just really takes the part and runs with it and he's got such a great delivery on some of these lines that you almost 
this is one you do have to watch a few times because there's so many quick little moments that you watch and you're not going to catch them the first time around. And just like every time somebody invokes the name of God, he reacts to it, which I think is hilarious. And it's so it's kind of stupid and kind of and kind of quick. And like if like at the point where John Denver's character, Jerry, says, thank God. And he just says, you're welcome. Real quick. <laughs> the delivery on these lines is everything. And he nails it every single time. Yeah. And it's very similar to like Leslie Nielsen. Leslie Nielsen, for people who don't know, was a very, very serious villain actor. And then all of a sudden he got a renaissance at the end of his career because of the movie Airplane, where he's a funny guy. And every movie after that, he was a funny guy. And that's really George Burns. He was God in like every movie until he died. And it was just amazing. And yeah, he it's it's the oddest thing, because, again, I grew up super religious, just like Jessica did. I lapsed. And for me, it wasn't like a simple lapse. Like, I just don't believe in this. For me, it was really I get to college and I'm like, well, OK, I don't have to do that crap anymore. And I was like, I remember being shocked in college that my friends were still going to church and service. And I'm like, you know, we don't have to do that. Our parents aren't here. Like, that's that was the extent of my thinking. Like, I, I just I don't have to do this anymore. But, yeah, like George Burns plays such a likable, sensitive, just like a, a charming God you'd like to hang out with. And he just makes everything he says make such rational sense for you think this is how religion should work. And this this is such an appealing view of religion. And that's the thing I really like about this movie and why it jumps out at me is that it's it's like it just presents this very theistic view that I think would appeal to anybody. Well, I think you nailed it right there. It is really I think this is and I have not read the novel on which the on which the movie is based. It's by a gentleman named Avery Corman, who's other big novel Kramer versus Kramer was also made into a critically acclaimed movie but I think the source material had to have originated as someone thinking about well if I could sit down with God what would I want him to say to me what would I want that guy to be like mm -hmm. you know I'd want him to have a little gentle sense of humor and I'd want him to tell me that everything can be okay which is the central message that God brings in this film he says it can work and he doesn't say, you know, it's all going to be okay and says hey, everybody comes together and is okay to each other, then things are probably going to turn out fine. And I think it's it's such a I, I think I keep going back to this word, but it's such a gentle view of of how the world, how you would want the universe to work. And it doesn't it doesn't rely on one message being right and another one being wrong and it's just such a great way of presenting everything. And I think I think that's what appealed to it for me as well. Like growing up in this kind of where I was already, even as a little kid, questioning like, OK, but why do we go to this church and not that church? And why do we believe in this God and not the one that people on the other side of the world believe in? Why are these things the correct things to believe and then you have this movie where God comes in and essentially says the only correct thing to believe is that you all have to be nice to each other mm -hmm. and it's going to be okay. And that I think I responded to as a child and watching it again now, I responded to it equally as positively. I, I just don't have a bad thing to say about the way that faith is portrayed in this movie. Yeah, and you almost think watching this movie now, like, I would really love to see a movie like this come out now in today's climate and today's era, where basically the message is just, hey, everybody chill out and just be nice to each other. Like, and that's, it's, it's such a simplistic way to view religion, but again, it's just so, so appealing. Yeah, I, well, I can't even imagine what that would look like if it got remade now. Like, half of, 
half of everybody would be boycotting it mm-hmm. and saying it was evil without even seeing it, of course. So they, everything is so polarized now. Yeah. Also, who could they get? Like, I think you can't make this movie without George Burns. <laughs> okay, what's interesting, do you know who they originally wanted to play God when they wrote this movie? I just read this today. I have not heard this. Mel Brooks. Well, that I could see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can see because I think some of the critical reception that I read about this was that it felt very much like an extension of Carl, Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks's 2,000-year-old uh, man sketches mm-hmm. that... I could definitely see this being geared toward him because it is very much that tone of humor. Yeah, it, it would have been a little more sticky, and it would have yes. been it would have been very tough coming off the combination of Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein saying, "Oh, that's the guy that's going to play God." Oh, I'm sure that won't offend anybody. But <laughs> but I, yeah, I do think that there maybe isn't an equivalent of George Burns now. Although saying that, of course, we've had other God movies like Bruce Almighty where you have. Morgan Freeman as God, I guess that would probably be the ideal choice. And again, maybe that's because he's already played God. I don't know if I'm really saying anything all that uh, extraordinary. No, I guess not. The movie that I think of when I think about other movies in this idiom is um, Defending Your Life, actually, (laughs) which is another one of my all-time favorite movies that doesn't get enough love. Mm -hmm. Because I think it does kind of take that same ecumenical tack where you think about how you would like things to be and just kind of build your world around that. And I think it it does the same thing very well in this sort of sweet, sentimental way. You know what's hilarious is the number one movie people have requested I do on Staff Picks is Defending Your Life. So that is an excellent, (laughs) excellent observation to the point that my birthday was actually on Sunday and my wife saw how many people were requesting it and she bought me a copy of it. So it will be coming soon as an episode. Well, that's great. I think it, it it makes a lovely companion piece to Oh God. And I think if you're looking for a double feature some night and you, you want some, like, quiet, sentimental worldview in your life, I think you could do a lot worse than these two. A little chicken soup for the soul, if you will. Yes, yes. Okay, let's walk through the plot of this movie. We've kind of uh, beat people over the head with discussion. I haven't even mentioned what this movie is about for People don't know this movie came out in 1977, and it's very a very simple plot. It's really God comes down from heaven and reveals himself to an assistant manager at Food Mart. Or wait, Food World? Food Mart, where is he? Where? Food, Food World. World, yeah. John Denver plays a assistant manager at a grocery store. God presents himself one day to him, and he says, uh, yeah, you're going to be my new Moses. I want you to go out and spread the word. Just tell people that I exist. Tell people that I'm watching, and everything's gonna, everything can be okay. It can all work out down here. Just let people know that I'm watching, and you guys need to be nice to each other. And it's basically a sitcom from that point of Jerry not believing at first and then slowly accepting it and finally being branded as crazy as he's going around telling newspapers, talk shows, and eventually a a famous preacher that, you know, God is telling me this, he's giving me all these messages and no one believes him. And it's really, it sounds more slapsticky than it is. It's really not. It's really a very gentle movie, really just with two actors, George Burns, again, who had barely done any movies, and then John Denver, who, for people who don't know, was a singer. He was maybe the most famous singer of his era, and this was his, like his first big movie. So it's kind of two novice actors, and it just kind of catches lightning in a bottle that the dialogue is so well-written and well-thought-out, and it's just such a, I keep saying gentle, just a gentle, thoughtful movie that it just it wins you over despite the fact that it shouldn't on paper. It's a weird movie, but it just does. Yeah, well, we've talked a lot about George Burns in this role, but I think John Denver 
was a big surprise because he hadn't really acted up until this point. Like we've seen, I think they'd seen him play interplay with some Muppets at this point, <laughs> but he'd never done a dramatic role. And to see him kind of, he's really the perfect choice for this character because this character is like the John Denver of movie characters. He's very inoffensive. And that's kind of the reputation that I think John Denver's music has. It's like, it's not pushing any boundaries. It's not, you know, assistant manager at Food World is kind of the perfect occupation as well. <laughs> Just like this guy really has never offended anybody. He doesn't have a mean bone in his body, but he's also not, he's not the most virtuous and the most godly person you're ever going to meet. He admits he's not religious, but He's very average. He's just like a composite of everybody. Yeah. And this is why he's chosen. And the perfect blend of kind of incredulity and resignation that John Denver brings to it, I think, is kind of overshadowed because he's so frequently upstaged by George Burns. Yeah. And again, George Burns would pretty much upstage anybody. But yeah. I've I've read reviews of this, and it's funny, when this movie first came out, a lot of the reviews kind of trashed John Denver, saying, well, he's clearly not an actor. But, again, for people who don't know John Denver, he did this really gentle Americana kind of country music at the time. Thank God I'm a country boy, stuff like that. Really gentle songs. And, yeah, it's 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 really hard to picture anybody else playing this role in this movie. And that's it's the weirdest thing, because I think I read he never even really did another movie after this. This is the only script he ever wanted to do, he ever liked. And I was actually listening to the DVD commentary uh, the other day where, like, Terry Garr was on there. Terry Garr ends up playing uh, her his wife. And she was like, he was so good. And, like, they all just fell in love with him. And even George Burns like notoriously kind of prickly, just like an old stickler vaudeville guy, even eventually realized how good John Denver was at just reacting to stuff and just the cadence of lines. And I think uh, the director of this movie, Carl Reiner, said the same thing. He said, John Denver had such an ear for lyrics and words that he was constantly like rewriting dialogue or making suggestions. And it always made sense because he just had a way with how conversations and words worked and that he was amazing for a first time actor. So it's like, like you said, he gets overshadowed by George Burns, and he really shouldn't, because I think he's really quite astounding for what minimal acting experience he had going into this. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't called upon to be King Lear in this, but he knew exactly what needed to be brought to the role, and he brought it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's all. And yeah, that's in the DVD commentary. That's one thing that Carl Reiner, the director of the movie, is on there, and, and the writer was, and they keep saying that over and over. This movie's simple. It does exactly what it has to do, and no more. And one thing I don't know if you noticed this. It, they really hype, they pound on it in the commentary that there's almost no music in this movie. It's really just like a stage play. It's just two characters talking in a scene. And, like, they'll just let these scenes go on endlessly of characters talking and talking about ideas and theology and faith and stuff. And, like, and Carl Reiner mentions that in the commentary. Like, they would never do a movie this way anymore because they would have to have special effects around God, make him glow. They'd have more comedy. They'd have wacky music. And, like, there's almost no music in this movie. It's like watching a play. Yeah, it. well, it did occur to me watching it uh, this week that it, it did feel very much like a play just because the minimal cast. And I think there were a lot of movies in the seventies and early eighties that were adapted from stage plays kind of hastily. And so you do see the seams and I was kind of shocked to find out that this had never been a stage play Mm -hmm. up to that point because it did have that same kind of feel to it where it, it felt like they'd maybe 
massaged the script a little bit and added some bigger ensemble scenes, but it very easily could have been a play with like four characters in it and one set. Yeah, no, absolutely. Although we are leaving out one of the actors in this movie, and that's Miss Terry Gar. And I know you probably have some opinions on Terry Gar. I will say, uh, she, I, I just read the greatest sentence. I was about an hour before we did this podcast. I was reading a review of Oh God. And Terry Gar, for people who don't know, wonderful, quirky, comedic actress, ended up playing a lot of annoyed wives in movies because you know actresses weren't really given a lot of lead roles back then so she was always the annoyed exasperated wife with a crazy husband and this is kind of what her lot ended up being but there's a great sentence that it says uh about this movie that he wrote asking terry gar to play exasperated is like asking luciano Pavarotti if maybe he'd like to sing something it's true it's true she really not enough is said about her performance in this role. Um, and she has one of my favorite lines in the entire movie, which I guess we'll get to as we go through the story. But, you know, we don't have the beats in the, at least the first hour of the movie are kind of the same thing over and over. It's like you have Jerry having God appear to him. And the first time that the first time God shows up for him, God invites him via a little typed message to come to an office building and sit down with him. And then progressively, Jerry keeps not really responding to it. And then God shows up again and Jerry thinks maybe OK, but maybe not. And then God shows up again and again and again. And a lot of these beats really kind of they have the same rhythm to them. Mm hmm. And every time the little coda on each one of those beats is Jerry goes home and Bobby is there to have him bounce the ideas off of her. And she says, well, this is this is going to ruin our lives. This is not great. I have to I have to go along with it. But it's getting crazier and crazier. And every single time you have like what makes those beats really work is having that coda on the end with someone else to play the ideas off of. Yeah. In, in essence, she speaks for the audience. She is responding as the audience would respond to your husband coming home and saying, Hey, I have to get on the news and talk about God. Talk to me today. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now, are you a Terry Gar fan? Um, I wouldn't say I'm like actively a Terry Gar fan, but I've enjoyed her in everything that I've seen her in. Yeah. He's, She's one of those I didn't really appreciate at the time in the 80s. And she was one of these people, when you look back in the 70s and 80s, she's in so many movies. You don't even realize how much stuff she was in. And it wasn't until I, I ended up, for people who don't know Terry Gart, you know what happened to her, right? What where she's afflicted with now? Um, yeah, I had heard I had heard she's not in the greatest of health. Yeah, she got multiple sclerosis. She has MS, very famous. She's written books about it. She had to retire from movies. So I've I've read a lot of her books. I've she's a wonderful writer. She's really naturally funny, and I've I've kind of followed her story. And I it was it was only something I discovered recently is that in the '80s, growing up, like almost every girl I had a crush on or I thought was cute was basically some variant of Terry Gar in middle school or high school. And I didn't even realize that until much later. So it's like so she was a, a an oddly significant part of my life. And she's just one of those people, she just never really got to have a lead role. She's always the supporting actress. I know she got nominated for the movie Tootsie for supporting actress, and that's really about it. But it's just one of those things when you watch her more, you just realize how good she is at playing off other people. Yeah, yeah. And she had guest spots on like every single sitcom you can think of. Um, and in fact, I think the one thing that I that comes to mind when I think of 
Kerry Gar roles. Uh, and I think this kind of ages me a little bit, but, um, I think of her three episode stint playing Phoebe's mother on Friends. <laughs> yes. And that's when I didn't even realize how appropriate that role was, that she basically was the Lisa Kudrow of the 70s and 80s. And that oh, was exactly. Yeah, that yeah. was such a perfect thing. I didn't realize it at the time. So if people really want to see two actresses kind of passing the torch to one another, watch exactly what Jessica is talking about those episodes of Friends. Yeah, because you really like, if you came of age in the 90s, you really couldn't get away from Friends. Mm hmm. And the other thing before we move into the movie, I know we're we're kind of delaying this a bit, but Terry Gar, the all-time favorite guest of David Letterman on Late Night with David Letterman, where he visibly had a crush on her and he was just flirting with her and she would flirt back and they were some of the greatest interviews ever. If anybody wants to watch some good TV, go watch old clips of David Letterman and Terry Gar from the 80s. Uh, I read an article about this fairly recently and it checks out. <laughs> Okay, so let's dive into the movie. We're going to kind of summarize this first part real quick because all the important stuff, I think, happens at the end of the movie. But, yeah, so basically uh, John Denver plays a, a uh, supermarket manager. He gets approached by God. One day he gets a little card in the mail that says, God grants you an interview. And he just kind of brushes it off. He thinks it's just a prank. And then the next day at work, he blows off the interview with God, and then he gets another card, which is like shows up in a, in a head of lettuce that he's preparing. So he's like, okay, well, this is real weird. Maybe I should actually show up and see what this is about. So he goes to this building in Los Angeles, and he goes up to this 27th floor, which he learns later does not exist. Somehow he's on this weird plane of a floor that doesn't exist, and it's an all-white room. And we just get the first of many great scenes with Jerry talking to God. And, and at this point, we don't see God. God cannot present himself to Jerry because humans cannot really they have no way to grasp what what God looks like in their head. So it's just a voice over an intercom that God has selected. And so we just have George Burns talking to John Denver over an intercom. And it's, it's one of the big standout scenes in the movie, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very simply done. And again, this one is very, is very play like it's very theatrical. Um, he's just sitting in an empty room and all there is, is this intercom and a voice from offstage. Yeah, something you could easily do in any stage production. And, and God starts talking with uh, Jerry. And obviously Jerry doesn't believe him at first, but God proves it by making Jerry go outside. And he, Jerry realizes he's in a room that doesn't exist, on a floor that doesn't exist, in this all-white room. He's like, okay, maybe I should be listening to what this guy's saying. And he starts asking questions. And, and again, that's one of the little charms about this movie, that God is just kind of folksy, kind of like your grandpa, just telling stories. Like, there's no fire and brimstone he's not scary he's just saying stuff like you know some of the things he created in the world things that he's proud of things he's not proud of let's see he's he's not proud of tobacco he says that was one of his mistakes and uh, avocados avocados yeah god is very down on avocados because he made the pit too big and again just little folksy stuff that's kind of cute yeah yeah it's very cute um and is it ostriches ostriches because they're silly looking things he's embarrassed by those yeah, and he gets into a few other admitted mistakes further on, which I think is part of what you are alluding to with it bordering on blasphemy. Yeah, I mean, that is the thing with blasphemy, that there are some really hardcore religions that would say you're not really supposed to show God on the same level as a human or put God in a human form. So I'm really kind of shocked there wasn't much controversy over this movie. I'm reading about it now, and I don't see almost anything about it being controversial or people protesting it so it must have been very uh well received did you read or heard anything about it being crossing lines or anything no i've never heard of anybody 
having any kind of issue with it, which I think is also in part down to the 70s being a relatively hippy-dippy accepting time. Um, like, I think that sort of ecumenical approach was a little more accepted. Um, this was well before the rise of the religious right. Um, they were kind of ascendant at this time, but you didn't, it wasn't a mainstream thing to be offended about religion, yeah. weirdly enough. Um, 70s were very easygoing in that regard. And I think it really, he doesn't come out and say, anything that's super controversial even this large organized church is being run by a profiteering terrible person that's really apparent and really true and you can't really argue with it um and some of the biblical stuff yeah i mean you look at it now and people tend to be very fervent about that sort of thing and you think well why weren't people more upset but the truth is like people didn't really get up on that soapbox about that sort of thing at the time. Yeah, although I do wonder if there had been stuff like social media, then you'd kind of have these people being able to kind of coalesce and meet up and form opposition. Like, obviously, in the 70s, there's no social media, so anybody who might have not, who might have had a problem with this wouldn't have been able to organize against it. So it would be interesting to see if a movie like this were to come out now. Actually, it would not be interesting. I don't want to see that. Yeah, I really don't either. But it's, it's also a good point that... Movies were a little more ephemeral in the 70s, too. Mm -hmm. Like, you, unless you were Star Wars, you pretty much were in the theater for as long as you ran. And P.S. Oh God actually knocked Star Wars out of the number one spot for a week, which yeah. I thought was crazy. Um, and crazy awesome. Um, and you would be in the theater. And then you would go away until you ran on TV at some point. They didn't even have VCRs at the time, so you couldn't really embrace a movie and it didn't have the same kind of staying power that movies today, you can watch pretty much anything you want at any time and you're not beholden to whatever's in your theater that plays two things at once or even whatever's in your video store. Um, so I think... Really, if a movie came out that offended everybody, like the people that were offended by it, there'd be a news article about it and they could get to be offended. And then the other people that were intrigued by the offensiveness would go see it in the theater and then it would go away and people would be offended by something else. And a movie like this now would just it would just mushroom like the outcry about it and the backlash to the outcry and the backlash to the backlash to the outcry. It could just. It can get into kind of a feedback loop with social media. So that's also part of it, I think. And it's just like the cultural environment of the 70s, again, was very, very different. And that's not just because a character can believably be the assistant manager in a supermarket in a single income household and still have a pretty nice house in the suburbs. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up that Star Wars thing because that's that's interesting is that this movie not only was not offensive and didn't piss people off, it was so popular, this is the movie that knocked Star Wars out of number one. That's astounding. Yeah, and nobody really knows about this movie today. Yeah, how, why is that? I'm curious why that is because yeah, I, I was listening again on the DVD commentary where Terry Garr was talking about this movie was so big it basically gave her a movie career. She's like, I was just a dancer. She danced with like Tony Basil and she did Young Frankenstein but she never really did anything significant and then she was an oh god and it gave her so much legitimacy as a Hollywood actor she was in everything in the 80s. So it's like this was a massive massive movie and it had two sequels that while not as 
big or maybe three sequels. I kind of forget how many sequels there had, but like, I think there were just two. They were fairly big hits too. And I will say that the only reason I knew, Oh God, as a kid is, is because I knew the second one first. I knew, Oh God, book two, which is about in this in the original John Denver gets approached by God in the second one. It's about a little kid, a little girl gets approached by God to spread the word. And that's the one that I was super familiar with. We used to, it would be on TV all the time. So I knew that one and then I eventually saw the original, but yeah, the sequels were fairly big deals too. So it really is odd that this movie is so forgotten these days. It's not odd when you consider that there's not there's not call for this kind of non-denominational faith-based discussion anymore. Like you either have to be the right kind of capital C Christian or you have to be the kind of person that keeps your faith under a bushel and doesn't really talk about it. And so that discussion doesn't happen. And so the kinds of things that facilitate that discussion don't happen. That's an excellent point. That may be the best point anybody has ever made on Staff Pick, so congratulations. All right. Cool. <laughs> All right, so let's go back to the movie here. So, yeah, so Jerry has been approached by God, and, and God says, well, you're going to be my messenger. I want you to spread the word. And Jerry's like, what message? And God's like, well, that I am. I exist. I just want you to tell people that I actually do exist. There's too much, you know, talk around the world these days that God is dead and God doesn't care. I just want people to know that I'm out there. And Jerry's like, well, why me? I'm not religious. And God's like, well, I'm not either, <laughs> which I think is yeah. a funny line. And then, yeah, yeah, I love that. Yeah, God has a great line here. He says, religion is easy. I'm talking about faith. You're going to help me change that. And so it's that's the point of this movie here that that we just have to have faith. Like, that, you know, the world was created for a reason and God gave us all these tools and all these things that can help us. We're here to work together and we're here to help one another. And, he, and God even says, and it's funny, this is you know how uh, prescient this is that he says this in 1977 God's like well I want you to tell people you know you're ruining my, my environment the skies look like mud you're killing all my fishes there's wars like stop it and it's really funny that you hear someone talking about that in 77 and it's like the world hasn't changed that much <laughs> well it is kind of this was like the first wave of ecology like you get Earth Day in 1970 and you get the crying Indian and like God is basically endorsing the crying Indian at this point <laughs> this is this is totally off subject, but I have to say this because you'll appreciate this. You just said this is when ecology started. One of my habits in, in real life is I love collecting old yearbooks from high schools from like way back in the 1900s. You find them at yard sales and on mm -hmm. ebook. I have a yearbook from a high school in Michigan in 1906, and there's literally an essay in there about how we need to save the rainforest. In 1906, some kid wrote that essay. Oh, wow. <laughs> Sorry, I just thought that was a nice little trivia note for ecology buffs out there. Yeah, I, well, I'm I'm a fan. <laughs> yeah, so Jerry has been told you're going to be my messenger. I need you to spread the word. And Jerry's like, but they'll they'll put me away. They'll say I'm crazy. You know, I'm just a, I'm just a man. What can I do? And God's like, well, Moses was just a man. Like, he wasn't anybody special. I just gave him a message. And and uh, what what's he say here that that uh, Jerry's like, well, you gave Moses tablets. You gave him the Ten Commandments. And God says, well, Moses had a bad memory. I had to write it down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Again, just little folksy things that George Burns says that. It's such a non-scary fire and brimstone God. He's just this dude that's set up. I know blasphemy. I just called him a, just a dude, but just some guy that's <laughs> set up this world and he just wants to see it work out. And he's this very hands-off God. And Jerry's questioning him like, well, why don't, why do you allow suffering? Why do you allow bad things to happen? And, and God always has an answer. He's like, well, I gave you,
you free will. That was one of the, my great inventions that man has free will. Like you can make it work. You can make it not work. It's really up to you. I'm not going to step in and stop things. And, and Jerry's like, well, why not? And so it's, it gets into this whole theology of why God just doesn't make things happen. But that's the view of God in this world that, that we're his creation. He's up there. He's rooting for us. You know, he's going to pat us on the back and tell us good job. But in the end, it's up to us and we need to make it work. And that's what he wants Jerry to tell the world. Although he says he's not, you know, he's a fan of the good of a good miracle from time to time, like the 69 Mets. <laughs> yes. Yeah, there's what, three things, three miracles that God will admit to in this movie. The 1969 Mets winning the World Series, the parting of the Red Sea, and then later in the movie he'll do a card trick. That's his other miracle. <laughs> yep. Okay, so Jerry goes home, and he's talking to his wife, and this is a Terry Gar at her Terry Gariest, where he <laughs> is, is telling her, you know, I spoke to God today. And she's just rolling his eyes. She's like, what? It's like, you're not even religious. What? And then, like, she's the religious one. He's not. And then she gets into this argument with him where she says, well, I believe in God, Jerry. I just don't believe that he exists, which I think, <laughs> I think is a great line. But, yeah, so Jerry is going to – Jerry is 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 not 100% sure. He hasn't really bought into this, but God is going to keep coming back and coming back. And at one point he appears to him as a, as a black woman in the store. Like, God can take different forms. And then God at one point appears to him in his car. And what eventually wins Jerry over is – God makes it rain inside Jerry's car, which is a, a wonderful 1977 Pacer, one of the greatest cars ever. Yeah, uh, it very much brings to mind, I, I believe it was an AMC Gremlin um, in Wayne's World, but that's the kind of car it is. <laughs> I was it's funny I was I was on the DVD commentary the director Carl Reiner was talking about why they picked such a hideous car for this movie and he said well it was very functional we needed a scene where it rains in his car so we wanted a car with a high roof where we could put the pipes and that that car had the highest roof of any car of its era so they just picked it so that is why it was immortalized in this movie simply functional reasons yeah because you're basically sitting on the ground in that thing <laughs> Okay, so yeah, so Jerry is doubling down now. God keeps appearing to him, and God's getting kind of pissy. Not really an angry God. God's just kind of disappointed that Jerry's not really putting his full effort into getting this word out. And then, uh, let's see here, uh, God appears to him in the shower. This is a great scene where, where Jerry's taking a shower one day, and God just appears to him. And this is where we first see him as George Burns, where previously God said you couldn't accept my real form, but now he's this little old dude in a fishing cap, which I know you said if, if you could choose the ideal religion, it would be an old guy walking around in a fishing cap. <laughs> well, I, I guess, I mean, it's non-threatening. It's kind of whimsical. I, I see the point. I would love to know what they said on the DVD tr commentary track about the fishing cap. <laughs> I don't remember the fishing cap coming up. I, I Maybe I can write to Carl Reiner and I can satisfy. I know he's still around. So he's like 90. Is he on Twitter? He is on Twitter. Let's tweet him after this and ask about why the fishing cap. Yep. And that's all we should say is why the fishing cap. <laughs> So God appears to Jerry in the shower, and, and Jerry's all covering up, like, ah! And God's like, what, you don't think I know what you got? <laughs> it, it's hard to say if this movie is a comedy or a drama. It's kind of the, that very 70s gentle where it straddles the line of both. But there are a couple of genuine laughs, and that's one that I always get. Just the way George Burns delivers some of these lines, and I know on the commentary Carl Reiner was talking about what makes George Burns so special as an actor, especially in this movie, is that he... He delivers a joke as if he's telling the truth. And that's the thing. It's not, he's not winking to the audience. He just, it's very folksy. He just says it matter of fact. And it's usually a quick, pithy observation. It's very, very charming to come out of God's mouth. 
Yeah, and then the ensuing um, explanation about how making clothes was a mistake because then you have pockets. If you have pockets, you got to put something in them. <laughs> it, it all comes from a very honest place, yeah. even though it's kind of absurd. Okay, and here is really the big point of this movie, the big picture that they kind of develop this whole theology around where at one point they were in the shower and, and Jerry's really questioning God on why he doesn't stop in and make the world molded in a certain way. And Jerry says, don't you care? Like people die, like there's wars, there's famine. Don't you care? And God says, of course I do. I care plenty. But what can I do? I only care about the big picture. I don't get into the details. Yeah, that's marginally blasphemous <laughs> <laughs> but again it's very again for a an atheist like me I, I i don't really i mean i say i'm an atheist but it's not like a conscious decision i just kind of just gave up on religion i just didn't really buy it after a while but like that's such a neat way to kind of view the world like if there were intelligent design and there was a creator and stuff and it all was passed down like i like that that's it's up to us like there is free will you can do whatever you want which i th i find that just a very appealing way to look at religion to the point that i watch this movie and it almost makes me want to be religious it kind of borders on deism when you think about it the mm -hmm. idea that there's a creator god that doesn't really concern himself that much with the day-to-day -day goings on of the world um and yeah it's a little more appealing than you know i, I wouldn't say i consider myself a hardline atheist either and you think, well, if that's how things were, like that's that's very that's very palatable. Like that's a kind of faith you can get behind. Mm -hmm. And there's one more line here that I uh, that I love where we learn that God is a huge slacker. Where <laughs> Jerry challenges him on some of the more you know biblical traditions. Like I don't believe them. And Jerry's like, I don't believe that you created the world in six days and then rested on the seventh. And God's like, well, you're right. I didn't. And Jerry's like, what? That's true. And God's like, yeah, I, to tell you the truth, I thought about it for five days and then did it all in one day. He's like, I, I work better under pressure. And so he basically, um, he was like me in college. Yeah, basically. He, when I think of God, I basically think of you. Well, I, I get that a lot. <laughs> yeah, so God is a huge procrastinator. So that's the one bit of theology to come out of this movie, that he cares, but he's hands off, and he's a huge procrastinator. Yep, that, that sounds about right. <laughs> Makes him more relatable. Exactly. He, again, he, like we have, we talked before we went on the air, he's basically just like your grandpa, just walking around in his fishing cap, giving out life advice. Just you want to hang out with him and go for a drive and just talk to the guy. Yep. Although I don't know if I want to go with a, for a drive with him because he might make it rain in the car. That's true. Just, just don't get a pacer. Get something with low roof so they can't put the pipes in there. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Although I, I would imagine that not being in a pacer was probably already on your life's goals. Yeah, I, I definitely, that's that's a bucket list item. <laughs> okay, so from here on out, Jerry is hardcore into the God thing. God has convinced him, so he goes to the newspaper, and he gets put on the back page, and he ends up, let's see, uh, what does he do? He goes to the LA Times, he uh, has to sit down and talk with his kids, he ends up on, on TV, and then at one point he ends up on the Dinah Shore show, which for people who don't know, Dinah Shore was a big... Uh, talk show former actress she had a talk show and it was very famous in the 70s so he's on there and then once he's on the talk show all hell breaks loose that all these religious wackos and like the Hare Krishnas and stuff are showing up at his house thinking he's the next savior and Jerry's wife of course Terry Gar is just going insane and what is the one line the garbage this is the line yeah this, this, is, this might be it. my favorite this might be my favorite one in the whole movie um I went to take the garbage out and two people blessed me one of them blessed the garbage <laughs> yeah 
<laughs> yeah, Terry, anytime she gets to open her mouth, she's going to steal the scene because Terry's just horrified. Yeah, they have to take the kids to school with like a private guard. Like it's just and she's like, is this worth it, Jerry? Like, is God really going to permit our lives to be ruined because of this stupid stunt you pulled? But Jerry knows that he's telling the truth. Oh, yeah. And then and then God has a great quote here, which kind of backs up Jerry's belief where God says, Jerry, you have the strength that comes from knowing. Like, you know you're telling the truth, even though everyone thinks you're crazy. And Jerry's life is slowly spiraling down and down. And it's really going to culminate in this thing where he's called in front of the university. There's like a, a college nearby him, and they have a theology department run by this uh, guy, a reverend. What is his name? Reverend Williams? Willie, yeah, Willie, Willie Williams. Yeah. Played by the wonderful actor Paul Sorvino, who people may know as the father of Mira Sorvino. And they, they called Jerry in, and they basically call bs on his thing you did not see god stop spreading the word and they're just this is these are kind of the villains it's, there's not really a villain in the movie but these would be the ones where these hardcore religious scholars just call bs on him and say you know prove that you talk to god and jerry says well i, I can't really prove it and they said yes we know and that's why we're going to debunk you and we're going to flat out state that you did not talk to god and they said but we'll give you one chance we'll present you with these these questions and so they give him like a questionnaire that he is supposed to present to god that only god would know the answer to these questions and this is probably the funniest scene in the movie where they lock him in a room and god is going to show up and bury and bail jerry out by answering what is basically as god says a history final yeah yeah and, and these guys are basically they're they they're all sitting around a, a long table and like sort of ethnically diverse they they look like the specter of religious panels <laughs> Yes, they do. <laughs> All the religions of the world are gathered, and they are going to quiz, and they give Jerry the quiz. And, of course, to make it even harder, they make it so Jerry can't answer the questions himself. They're all written in the ancient language of Aramaic, which I don't think we've seen since an Indiana Jones movie, the last time we saw a good Aramaic scene in a movie. Yeah, I, I mean, well, I, I love that Aramaic is always the go-to. <laughs> the Aramaic lobby is strong in Hollywood. Yeah, well, just ask Mel Gibson. <laughs> Very good. Okay, so yeah, God, so Jerry's been locked in a hotel room by this the theology department. He's supposed to answer all these questions. And so God shows up and God's like, oh, look, they, they put him in Aramaic. Cute, very cute. And so God starts sitting down and answering these questions. And this is, again, one of the big signature uh, scenes in this movie where we hear a lot about the theology of this movie and the theology of God, what he thinks about things. And they ask him like, uh, questions about judgment day and adam and eve and what is the he has a really good explanation for adam and eve it was about what about how he thought they were in middle age it was something like that yeah he made them too young and they had a lot of life in front of them and um they realized they were just teenagers and that his mistake was not was not bringing people with a little more wisdom and age oh yeah and also the he thought life expectancy would be like 30 yeah. So he thought Adam and Eve would be middle-aged, so they'd be representative of the people. That was it, and and they're they're too young; they don't have enough life experience or something. Right, right. And then kids. The, he doesn't say that you know young people are a mistake because kids are one of his greatest inventions, but he would have done that differently. Yeah, and then there's a quote in there where 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 the religious the theology department asks, "Are you the son? Are you the father of Jesus? Is Jesus your son?" And God says, "Well, yeah, Jesus is my son. So is Muhammad. So is Buddha. Everyone, you're my son. Everyone's my son. There is no one true religion. We're all just here, and we have to work work together." And then <laughs> another great George Burns quote, and this is the one that I always think of when I think of this movie. God says, uh, "You know, I think Voltaire had me right. He said I was a comedian playing to an audience that was afraid to laugh." 
Yeah, which is pretty much exactly how he's playing this role. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so, yeah, so God answers all these questions in Aramaic about the history of the universe, all the great mysteries of life. And he says, take this to the reverend guy, this Paul Sorvino. Take this to the reverend who's out there conning all these people and give me give these answers and say, God says he's a phony. He, uh, say, tell him that. Say, uh, if he wants to get rich, fine, but tell him I told him to shut up. So <laughs> Jerry's going to get in trouble here because he's going to walk into the most famous preacher, basically, of his era and call him a fraud in front of everybody in all his congregation. And what's going to happen is Jerry will be hauled into court at the end of the movie for, uh, what is he? Slander. Slander, yes, because he slandered a very famous televangelist. And this is kind of the, the wrap-up of this movie where Jerry will be prove have to prove once and for all he really did talk to god or he's going to be sued and lose everything that he's been worked for all these years did you notice that nobody actually ever looks at the answers <laughs> i didn't notice that no so god spends all these times answering the history final and nobody looks yeah nobody nobody grades his paper <laughs> so i guess that's very fitting for this movie that all these you know hardcore organized religious people have the answers to the universe in front of them and they don't care they would just rather you know keep up with the charade that they're the charade that they're gathering money to save to in god's name yes that's i think that's exactly the point <laughs> that's good i actually did not notice that but that's very funny yeah, in fact, I, I watched to see if I could see what actually happens to the papers. Like, he brings them up on stage to Reverend Williams, and then he, he kind of puts them in Reverend Williams' face, but I don't think he, like, throws them away or anything. He just kind of, they just kind of drag Jerry off stage, and it's never revealed if anybody actually ever read any of it. So all the answers to the mysteries of the universe have been shoved in a drawer somewhere and will be discovered in, like, 100 years. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> so, there you go. That is the the over overlying uh, message of this movie that uh, religion doesn't really care about the actual answers. They're more interested in in pulling in the money. Yeah, yeah, uh, or getting their message out. I think I I don't think God specifically says it's about money. He says it's it's really about them pushing their own agenda, which frequently is money, but frequently it's other things too. Absolutely. Okay, so now we get the big uh, wrap-up of this movie, the big, the final scene where Jerry's in court, and this is Terry Gar again just being exasperated and fed up that they're about to lose all these years of assistant managing at the food mart that he has built up. <laughs> it's, again, it's, it's funny watching these old movies that the, the career goals are generally a little, uh, they're aiming a little lower than you would see in like an 80s or 90s movie where everyone's like a hotshot lawyer or something, like a Tom Cruise movie. In this one, he just wants to make manager at the supermarket. So it's it's... It's it's interesting when I watch these 70s movies how much more, uh, I would say more realistic to life, like the slice of life that I remember living, but I'm not sure if that's the right word, but it's just, it's more uh, middle class than movies tend to be in later years. Well, yeah, exactly. Like, he's not, he's not well off by any means, and you can tell they struggle with money, but it's also, he's relatively comfortable in his assistant manager role at the supermarket, and... That's that that feels very 70s to me. Assistant to the manager, right? <laughs> yes, assistant to the manager. <laughs> OK, so, yeah, Jerry's in court and he has nothing to back up his claims. He's being called to testify. He has nothing to back up that he actually talked to God. But although, again, he knows he has the strength that comes from knowing. And then this is, uh, again, the the scene. You'll see this on YouTube. You can go Google it if you want to watch a scene from this movie that this scene is represented several times on YouTube where. George Burns just appears in the courtroom, and this is the first time he has really revealed himself to everybody, and he's going to come in there and basically save Jerry's butt by just laying the smack down on everybody, and this is a, an awesome George Burns moment here. 
Yeah, although the point immediately prior to him appearing in the courtroom where Jerry says that, you know, he calls on God to come in and everybody sits there expectantly for a minute and he says, aha, you all expected something would happen, so doesn't that leave enough reasonable doubt? Mm -hmm. I thought that was a really clever moment as well, especially when you pair it with the panel of religious experts. Like, they also have that moment of anticipation because if they didn't they wouldn't give him a whole list of questions to answer that's true yeah they they do leave the door open that maybe he's telling the truth and that it's it's a very like you said a very smart screenplay it's clearly written by people who know how stories work and screenplays work and it's not a surprise when you know carl reiner was behind this and he's you know he was in charge of like the dick van dyke show and like every every Steve Martin movie, like Carl Reiner, a big shot writer and director. So he had his hand in this and he had other comedy writers in there. So yeah, it's very intelligent screenplay. And then again, George Burns kind of shows up at the end and there's the great line where he gets sworn in as a witness and they say, yeah. he's swear to tell the truth, the whole truth to so help you God. And uh, George says, yes. So help me, me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> judge is like, what? So it's kind of like a little, my cousin Vinny here where the judge just does not believe that he's God. And then this is where George Burns just charms everyone that he just uh, basically lays the smack down. You know, I sent you a messenger. I'm telling you that, you know, I exist and that everything can work out. Why is this so hard for you to believe? And again, God actually gets kind of pissy here where he says, you know, why is it so hard that people can believe the devil exists? You just had that movie and he references The Exorcist. He says that movie was a huge hit. Everyone bought it. Why was that so easy to believe that no one that can believe that, that I'm here? So he kind of gets annoyed that he sent this messenger and no one bought into it. And then uh, at one point he says he's going to do a miracle, even though he doesn't really, he's not a miracle guy, but he will do one to prove that he's God. And he chooses a card trick, which I, I think is wonderful. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's pretty it's pretty wonderful, like, the way he's got the patter down, and he's like, oh, there aren't any cards? Well, look again, and poof, and and it, it's all it's all very silly, I think. Yeah, it's very light, but again, it's a very, it's an image of God that I think would appeal to many people, even if you're religious, if you're non-religious, and I would guess most of my listeners have not seen this movie, heard of this movie, anything. I would advise you to kind of watch this one. It's such a, just a... And I, I keep saying appealing and gentle. I, I don't know any more words that are more appropriate than that. Yeah. It's just it's just a very appealing view of what you would like God to be like. And even God kind of says here at the end of the movie, after he, he bails Jerry out, he proves he exists, and he he disappears from the courtroom. He kind of walks out and he disappears. He says, uh, I just want everyone to have faith. Try. And try not to hurt each other. We've had enough of that. No matter how scary it is, no matter how scary it gets, it can work. You might not believe in me, but I believe in you. Yeah, that's very feel-good 70s. Like, that's straight out of Free to Be You and Me. <laughs> it is. It is, but again, it's 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 corny, but it's like, like I kind of miss that corniness in movies. You don't, everything's so cynical and like uh, fast-paced and just uh, slick these days in movies. This, this movie is like the exact opposite of that, would you kind of say? Yeah, I would say this is, I, I mean, the... The thing that I, I like about it is how earnest it is. Mm -hmm. Like everything they're trying to do, they're not – they're actually making a visible effort to to bring it to you and not acting like they're kind of above it or that it never talks down to you. It never condescends, which is – a very rare thing in a movie these days. Yeah, it really does treat the audience with respect and dignity. 
and that's why I just can't say enough about it. And I always say, again, this is not a movie that people would expect me to like, because I'm usually either horror movies or comedy movies. And this one, it's it's billed as a comedy, but it's not. It's just it's it's just a sweet little movie that makes you feel good about yourself and makes you feel positive about life and the human race. And again, even if you're not religious, it makes you feel like you want to go out and make a difference in the world. I want to go be nice to people. I want to make a difference. I just want to make things work out. We're all here to help each other. That's the whole point of life. And when, in fact, at one point, they even ask God, I think one of the questions is, what's the meaning of life? And God says, well, the meaning is what you, whatever you think it is. Like, there is no meaning. It's whatever you make of it. And which I think is a very uh, humanistic way to look at. That's like a humanistic psychology that you control your own destiny. And it's really you have control over it. Yeah, or it was like the end of Back to the Future Part 3 when Doc Brown says the future hasn't been written yet. Ah. It's whatever you make it. Absolutely. And then, yeah, at the end of the movie, uh, so Jerry basically gets cleared of all the uh, charges of slander. And uh, because the judge can't prove that that God was there, they can't prove that God wasn't there. All the court transcript doesn't have God's recording voice on it. All the things they typed that he said don't show up. So everyone's kind of flabbergasted what happened. They throw out the charges. And basically, God says goodbye to Jerry at the end of the movie. He says, basically, or Jerry's like, did we win? Did we fail? Did we succeed? And and God's like, well, you're basically Johnny Appleseed. You went out there and you planted some seeds and maybe some good will come out of it. People will have faith and they'll do good deeds. And so you were you're kind of like my my Joan of Arc here. You were my Moses. You started the motion, the movement, and it's all going to go from here. And and Jerry says, well, thanks, God. Am I ever going to see you again? And and God says, no, nah, you don't need I'm going to go on a safari or something. God is going to go hang out with yeah. animals for a while. And then and then. uh God, Jerry says, can I talk to you? And God says, well, how about this? You talk, I'll listen, which I just think is a really neat thing that for people, I don't really believe in prayer, but I know many people do, but it's just a very nice thing to think that if when you are praying, when you're talking to a higher power, that maybe he's not talking back, but maybe he is listening. And it's very, I think it's very comforting to people. Yeah. And I, th I think it does leave the viewer feeling very cared about. Yeah. That's wonderful. That's a good point. That's that's a good word. I was trying to think the whole how I was going to sum up this movie. You walk out of it feeling like you feel cared about. And I think that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And there's it really it seems like and it seems like the movie wants you to feel that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It doesn't talk down to you. It doesn't condescend to you. It doesn't beat you over the head with slapstick puns, jokes. It really it's just it just feels like a movie. Someone believed in the story. They wrote it with very thoughtful intelligent dialogue and they believed in you and they wanted you to believe in the, the movie and it really it just it just you come out of it feeling like everybody respected one another in this whole process and again when you read reviews of this or behind the scenes stuff like they all loved carl reiner the director everybody loved terry gar i think uh carl reiner even says on in the in the commentary you know terry gar you were the perfect choice for this because like every director and producer in hollywood had a crush on you they loved you you were like their favorite which sounds creepy maybe now in the modern era but at the time <laughs> i think it was meant as a very gentle compliment but yeah like a george burns i think read that he he went into this movie not wanting to act he didn't really want to work with george burnt with uh, john denver but he went to a concert and he saw how talented john denver was and he really became a fan he really liked working with him and i i'd read that terry gar was the same thing she was this uh, stage actor at the time and they were trying to lure her into a movie and she didn't want to do it. And she's like, I don't want to work with John Denver. He's nobody. I don't, I'm a, I'm a trained Broadway actor. I don't work with singers. And like, she just came to love him. And I remember in her book, she writes about what a gentle, nice, kind soul he was and how just this whole movie just screams respect. Everyone just had a good time and respected one another. 
Yeah. Well, and is it really possible to hate John Denver? Like the only people I know that have ever said I hate John Denver are people that are being trying to be edgy and subversive. And if you are edgy and subversive and you run smack into this movie, it doesn't work. You you just get like rejected back out of it, you know? Yeah, that's interesting. Do you think someone comes in hard and edgy and just hates John Denver and just loves snark? And they run into this movie. Do you think it's possible to hate this movie? Like, you and I are two of the snarkiest people I would say I know. <laughs> yet we were completely won over the, by this movie. I cannot say anything bad about this movie. I'm just wondering if it's possible for someone to absolutely bounce up against this movie and hate it or just reject it. Well, I can think of, and there's another movie that's kind of the same. And I was, and I, it didn't occur to me until I was reading some of the contemporary reviews of the movie, uh, it was compared a lot to Frank Capra's work, mm -hmm. specifically It's a Wonderful Life, which is another movie that is so earnest and appealing and comes away with such a great message that I have a hard time fathoming why people hate it. And yet many, many people I know hate it. And I and the reason cited for why people hate It's a Wonderful Life is overexposure. So I could see someone feeling the same way about Oh God if it was something that they caught on the Encore channel a million times when they were a kid and they just kind of got overloaded with it. Mm -hmm. But I can't see someone coming into this once and coming away from it with a negative opinion. Yeah, no, I, I do think that probably is correct, that in a way this movie was helped by the fact that it is kind of obscure and Maybe I'm underselling it. Maybe a lot of people know about it, but it's one of those, like, you can barely find reviews written of it on, on the Internet Movie Database. I think there's only five that they have linked to. Like, it's one of these, there's it doesn't have much of a presence. So, yeah, if they were to run this movie on Christmas every year, if it was a family tradition, I could see people getting sick of it. But, again, it, that's not the case. So, it's one that I really would hope a couple of my listeners, or maybe a lot of my listeners, go out there and, and give this movie a chance, try to track it down, because it's just, it's not, it's... The feeling you get coming out of this movie is not what you're used to. It's a whole different type of relationship between movie and audience, and I think it's something that's just it's just kind of neat because that doesn't exist very much in the world anymore. Yeah, I mean, I would liken it to if you didn't get It's a Wonderful Life shoved down your throat every year and you still look forward to it being on NBC on Christmas Eve. It's the same feeling when you finish watching It's a Wonderful Life on NBC on Christmas Eve. But... You can watch it any time of year because it's not seasonal. Mm -hmm. Okay, so with Oh God, again, Oh God, huge hit, came out, gave John Denver a, an odd acting career all of a sudden. It really gave George Burns a second acting career because I know, again, he won an Oscar for Sunshine Boys, but this is the movie that people really remember him for because he became God. Although I would argue there's another movie right there, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club oh. Band, that he had the misfortune of showing up. Have you seen that? When are you going to do staff picks about that one? Yeah, I'm not sure that I drink enough to be able to have the confidence to do that one. Have you, You've seen that one movie, correct? Oh, yeah, I have seen that one. Yeah, it's, for people who don't know, they made a musical out of the Beatles in the late 70s, and it's the worst possible combination of bad covers of Beatles songs. It's got the Bee Gees. It's got disco. They cram way too many songs in it. Like, it's just horribly written, acted, everything. And then George Burns has the misfortune of being the narrator where he has to sing Fixing a Hole by the Beatles, which is a really poor combination of singer for song. And it's just, it's, we'll just forget that George Burns was involved in that. Just think of him as the Oh God guy, and it makes more sense. Yeah, it, it definitely, I kind of block out the entire existence of that <laughs> film. Um, 
but it is it is one of the most 70s things to ever 70s. <laughs> I will say a bit of trivia. Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band was the first movie I ever saw on VHS. That was my introduction to the world of home video. So it was all uphill from there. Yeah, well, I, I guess there are worse places to start. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah so okay so oh god big movie it gave terry gara a career it gave carl reiner loved it it was just a big hit and then they made the two sequels have you now do you are you you said you watched the other sequels are you familiar with them off the top of your head or would you would you have to watch them again um oh god book two i would definitely have to watch again because something about that little girl when i was about that age like just graded on me like <laughs> she's not the most nuanced of child actors <laughs> I was just reading about her. Her name, do you know about her? Her name is Luann, and she was a yeah. very famous stage actor. She was Annie on Broadway. And so yep. she kind of brings that over-the-top Annie, I would say almost like Vanessa Bayer on SNL, those child actors. Yes. That enthusiasm to the role. So, yeah, I, I saw Oh God book two many, many, many times when I was a kid, and I have not gone back to it because I do remember her being a little over-the-top perhaps. Yeah, yeah, just a just a smidge. Um, the one scene I remember from that is she's in a sidecar on a motorcycle and God is driving the motorcycle and she gets pulled over because they don't see anybody driving the motorcycle and they ask her who's driving and she says God is. Well, there you go. God was her literal co-pilot there. Exactly. There, I see what you did there. <laughs> yes. Although yeah. George Burns was like 100 by that point, so I'm not sure he should have been driving anything. Yeah, no kidding. Um, well, he actually, he made it just to 100 he did. when he passed away. He was like, and I remember a lot of his act was revolved around like he was going to make it to 100. And he, sure enough, that's exactly where he was when he passed away. <laughs> now, I, the third God movie, were there three or four? I, there not... were three. Okay. And the third one is the other one that I saw that one many, many, many times. And part of it was because I could rent it. I think it was the only Oh God movie that I could actually rent from the local video store. And so I did several times. Um, and it, the premise of that one is not that God comes to somebody. It's that the devil comes to a man uh, played by Ted Wass, who was the father on Blossom <laughs> and – it's a very mid-80s cast of people that you wouldn't remember unless you watched a lot of sitcoms in the 80s. Um, so then the devil comes in the form of George Burns and makes him sign this contract. He's a struggling musician, and he says, I'll make you famous. And he makes him famous, but then he makes him into a rock star who is not him. And he takes on this other man's identity, and it's very wrenching because he has a wife and – an unborn child and he has to figure out how to get out of the contract. And so of course calls on God. Hmm. And I remember the line where he runs into a street preacher who says to find God, you have to go to the desert. And so he goes to Las Vegas and he pages God in the hotel and then God wins his soul back in a poker game with the devil. <laughs> this sounds very convoluted. That is a way far more significant, complicated story than the original. Yeah, yeah, it was really, it turns out that this was a screenplay that somebody else wrote, and it was sitting on a shelf for a long time, and then when this Oh God thing got legs and started to be a franchise, they dusted off the screenplay and kind of wrote George Burns' voice into the characters, and yeah, it's it's actually, it's entertaining, and it's, again, it's one of those, like, sort of very simplified how you would like the world to work portrayals of faith and 
I remember really enjoying it as a child, but I'm sure it doesn't hold up quite as well anymore. Um, I think it did kind of convey that same sort of sentimentality, but of course, by necessity, when your main character is the devil, it does get a little darker. And I have heard, I, again, I have not seen that one. I just heard it's the law of diminishing returns that if people who like the first one say, well, the second one was okay, the third one gets kind of corny and campy. But again, I, although I am curious about something you said, you said it was the only one you were able to rent in the video store. Yeah, and I think that was just like the weird selection in the video store. Like they kind of rotated stuff out over time. And okay. so they didn't have the first two Oh God movies, but this one was still relatively recent, I guess. Okay, I was going to say, yeah, was Oh God book two always rented? Was that the problem? Was it too popular in your area? There was some kid in my in my hometown who was obsessed with Oh God book two. <laughs> it might have been me. So we may have I may have grown up near you may have heard the legend of me. I may have lived in New York or wherever. Oh, wait, you were from Montana, right? You're I Montana. was from Montana. Okay, yeah. so maybe you heard about me in Spokane as the Oh God book two kid. Yeah, maybe maybe the video just wound up in Spokane and that was the problem. <laughs> but Oh God, You Devil came out in 1984. So right around like 1988, 89, when I would have been renting it, it was probably still recent enough that the video store felt it was a new release. <laughs> okay. Okay, before we sign off here, there's two last things I have to say. One is that Donald Pleasance is in this movie and it's hilarious because he gets fourth billing and he has two lines in the entire movie. He's in one scene. <laughs> And I don't know why he gets fourth billing, but he had a hell of an agent. Well, he was famous. <laughs> and this was uh, before Halloween, so he hadn't even played Dr. Loomis yet. Yeah, I, I don't know. I guess, I mean, he's known. I've I've heard the name. He was a Bond villain. He was, he was Oh, yeah, he was Blofeld. Right. <laughs> and the other thing is that I remember reading some trivia about this, and I wanted to end with this, that all this whole podcast, we've talked about how awesome George Burns is and how he rocks and how he owns this role and how... Nobody could play this role, maybe aside from Morgan Freeman, but that's a whole different argument. But I remember reading stories of the making of this movie, how disinterested he was in sticking around and acting, how literally every scene was everyone else blocking and doing their lines and George Burns standing around and saying, can we hurry up? I got a card game I got to get to. <laughs> so that's the thing. He's so good in this movie, yet he phones it in completely. Yet he's that good that he could pull it off. Yeah, well, it's such an effortless performance. And uh, I guess it was an effortless performance because he didn't really give a lot of thought to it. Yeah. So anyway, that is our coverage of Oh God. Do you have, Jessica, anything else you'd like to add about this wonderfully underrated and forgotten movie before we sign off and continue to not go to church? <laughs> um, I really just want to encourage people to track this down. It's not hard to find. Um, for all of the complaining we did that it's not in wide circulation, it's relatively easy to track down, and it's really quite sweet and straightforward, and I don't think you'll feel like it was time wasted. If you already wasted an hour of your life listening to us talk about a movie you haven't seen, go the extra mile, get the reserve another two hours, and go watch this movie, because I think even – and if you have seen it and it's been a while – Go watch it again because I think the experience is much different as an adult. Yeah, absolutely. This is one I'm so proud that I got to talk about on Staff Picks because, again, the comedies are kind of easy. We just get on here and we pick out our favorite laugh parts and laugh about them. And in the horror movies, we explain why it was scary. This Talking about dramas is a whole different thing. And, again, I know this is technically a comedy, but I would say it's more of a drama because it's so so thoughtful and stuff. But So I'm always 
please when I get to talk about a drama and I think we can actually make it interesting to listeners to hear about it because dramas inherently are a harder sell than like the more uh, fantastical movies so again I just want to thank you Jessica for stopping by and I want to thank all my listeners again everyone for uh, giving this new podcast a chance hopefully you will get a chance to find oh god give it a listen and realize and learn why people loved George Burns so much how he was one of the most beloved entertainers of his era and again even after his career ended this was his second career as an actor and he became beloved there too so again if you want to reach me if you have any feedback on this podcast you can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com you can reach me on twitter at mario j lanza and until the next time i talk to you i will be out looking for more underrated and underloved movies and the next one's going to be fun i have a very 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 obscure horror movie coming up later in the week called tourist trap which i can guarantee most people have never seen but i love talking about it so I will talk to you guys later. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. If you wanted to see me, why didn't you just appear over my bed? Ah, uh, Hollywood. Next question.